from the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond. You're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. The resuscitation is the incision. The resuscitation is the uh, control of the bleeding. And literally, a major aortic and cava and portal vein and iliac artery and vein injury in the belly can be controlled with your hand in 15 seconds, literally. And so going directly from the ambulance wheels, the drones, blade stopping uh, to going to the operating room could be achieved in less than 60 seconds. That's Dr. Ken Maddox, the one and only, who shares his thoughts, experiences, as well as wisdom regarding the past, present, and future of trauma surgery. And as we head into part two of a two-part series, please be sure to support the show. You can visit us at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to leave us a five-star rating as well as a kind comment, and be sure to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. Also, don't forget to register for the Trauma Critical Care and Acute Care Surgery 2022 Conference at Caesars Palace. That is happening March 28th to 30th. If you're going to attend one scientific surgical meeting this year, make sure this one is it. Yours truly will be there with a number of fantastic world-class trauma and acute care surgeons. This is an event not to be missed. And now, back to Dr. Maddox. One of the things that struck me about your talk a couple of weeks ago was future research endeavors. And you just talked about backing off of the vasopressors and having lower targets for critically injured patients. Any other thoughts or ideas for our young investigators and researchers out there in terms of some areas in need of clarification? Yes. Uh, Marty Schreiber has written a lot, as well as other people, on uh, the whole blood. And he has experience in the military. I think it's a good concept. However, if we use plasma and whole blood and platelets, and before we plug the holes up in the bucket, we drive the pressure up to 140, we're going to have the same results. So no one at any meeting I've been to has raised the question of blood, platelets, and plasma to a systolic of 70 and stop versus going to 120 systolic. And that's wide open for multi-center study or a single center study or even a laboratory study. That, that is very conducive to a laboratory study, very controlled. And uh, I would be very uh, uh, eager to see those uh, results. Uh, so, yes, time has always been uh, the golden hour, Adams Cali, uh, getting people to the hospital early, uh, using a helicopter. We have a new toy, a new device, a new tool called uh, the drones. In, in Dubai, you're going to be able to get a uh, cab uh, without a driver that you call and takes you to wherever you want to go just by a call through a drone. Uh, It's not going to be long before we're going to be using drones as ambulances. It's not going to be long before a large drone will appear at a scene of a major auto accident, a major gunfight, or a major war zone. Let's take Yemen right now. 
they're they're taking people to Kamis Meshet in Saudi Arabia, uh, taking people all the way to Riyadh, uh, to Jeddah, um, and uh, it is possible, I understand, for the probes that we use in uh, in uh, the Da Vinci device to be put in by a technician. Wow. <laughs> if we have a drone that serves as an ambulance that's the size that allows for a Da Vinci device to be put into place, uh, it would be interesting in a concept to do remote surgery during that time of transport, and you re- we could reduce our our time to near zero. Simultaneous to this concept is... For the super sick patient, the big bad patient that needs surgical hands to fix things now, what is the function of the emergency room? The the only thing you can do in the emergency room in that patient is make the patient worse by keeping them longer. So Dave Hoyt, who is stepping down as the director of the American College of Surgeons, has won a beautiful play paper several years ago from San Diego on uh, bypassing the emergency room in this kind of patient. And that data is very solid that the resuscitation is the incision. The resuscitation is the uh, control of the bleeding. And literally, a major aortic and cava and portal vein and iliac artery and vein injury in the belly can be controlled with your hand in 15 seconds, literally. And so going directly from the ambulance wheels, the drones, blade stopping, uh, to going to the operating room could be achieved in less than 60 seconds, especially as we develop a hybrid operating room for trauma. And the skill set for embolization or use of the catheter or uh, use of uh, intravascular ultrasound is a skill set best used by that new terminology surgeon, whatever it is. <laughs> right. uh, and uh, I'm not smart enough to come up with that name, but I am uh, curious enough to raise the question uh, for the new opportunity. And I think these days, Dr. Maddox, uh, many of us would refer to that particular person as the acute care surgeon. But as you've already alluded to, I think this should probably entail some endovascular as well as vascular fellowship training as well. And we certainly do have colleagues out there in the trauma community who are uh, dual certified or fellowship trained. Uh, as a graduate of UCSD in the fellowship program there, I can say that the actual OR resuscitation or direct-to-OR resuscitation actually seem to work very well, particularly when patient meet particular criteria and you have a good sense in the pre-hospital setting that these patients are going to require operative intervention. And we would always joke that the only time that patients spent in the ER was the time it took them to roll in through the front doors to the elevator to get up to the operating room. So obviously, Dr. Maddox, the golden hour of trauma is well-established, and many people talk about the platinum 10 minutes. It's incredible to see other countries, specifically like Japan, where if you were to enter the trauma bay, they have the capability of performing active resuscitation, performing diagnostic imaging, at which point you are now in a hybrid angio suite 
ready to go in terms of hemorrhage control interventions. Is that the future of trauma surgery? There are stretchers, uh, litters that uh, are marketed to put the patient on right out of the ambulance, which literally is a uh, vascular stretcher as well. And once you put them on them, you never take them off. When you go to the operating room, the space is empty. Boom! Your operating room table is, is the litter. And uh, uh, so what have we done? We've created all these ancillary devices that eat up time. Yeah, they do. They really, really do. And for, again, getting back to Reboa, there's a learning curve there. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen delays to the operating room while people fiddle with access to the groin vessels, shoot x-rays to make sure there isn't an intrathoracic injury. The sooner we get these injured bleeding patients to the operating room, the better. As a general surgery resident on private rotations, uh, I was participating in exposure of most of the major named uh, venous and arterial structures in the body. preparatory to going on the pump, uh, preparatory to doing uh, major uh, vascular reconstructions. At that time, they were all open. So sometimes surgeons would run two and three rooms with residents uh, preparing the room uh, for their moving over and then uh, would close the case at the end. So uh, uh, I think we're a little derelict in our general surgery training and teaching the technical surgical skill, we're teaching algorithms and clinical practice guidelines and, and things that literally are back in the mindset of the internists, the rehab, the psychiatrists, uh, not the technical surgeon. Well, thankfully for us in the field of surgery, Dr. Maddox, we have books like Trauma as well as Top Knife and then Rich's vascular trauma. Top knife in particular, I got to say, I think this holds a a special place in the hearts of many budding as well as active trauma surgeons. This is such a well-written, at times humorous book, but it really does focus on the intraoperative techniques and indications for doing certain vascular exposures and maneuvers. How did that particular book come into existence? Because I haven't seen a second or third edition. hasn't changed. It hasn't had to. You sound like Asher Hirschberg. (laughs) I've been wanting to have a second and third edition. And I've wanted to add uh, maybe uh, vascular exposure, maybe uh, uh, pelvic fractures, uh, maybe Reboa. Uh, to it. Uh, But Asher says, what would that add? (laughs) And uh, I can tell you that the international sales of Top Knife has remained level uh, all the years it's been out. And so he says, uh, uh, is it going to increase sales? Sales are already level and uh, people still like it. And what can we say that really is going to help people it may hinder people. So we're going to leave it like it is. Uh, How did it come about? Uh, Saturday morning was always a very good time uh, after usually a busy Friday night. And uh, Asher joined us as a fellow from Israel uh, years ago. And often on Saturday morning, we would meet with the residents, put our feet up on the coffee table and uh, drink coffee and go over those cases. And, uh, Asher said, uh, 
hey, let's make a book and make it like this Saturday morning. The same humor, the same uh, uh, sayings that we would use uh, uh, would go at the first of each chapter. And we turned a tape recorder on. Mary Allen, who's uh, uh, on the book, uh, uh, would then uh, change our uh, Saturday morning bantering into publishable uh, words. And we found a, a local artist, and we wanted to make it a practical way to technically deal with a technical problem. And uh, uh, the big detriment to general surgery over the last 10 years has been the emphasis on non-operative surgery, not uh, the technical aspects. So we wanted to make a technical book that was short and sweet, with drawings that could help somebody uh, in the heat of battle uh, without having to autoclave an entire atlas or uh, anatomy book and uh, to say, this is what you do. We want it to be a surgical management technical book. Uh, A businessman somehow got hold of this book from Mexico City and convinced someone in Mexico to translate into Spanish And then he bought a thousand copies and distributed all of his business friends, not who are not in medicine, in order to to, as an approach to critical issues in business. And and I don't know if it's helped them or not, but it's it it, it goes beyond technical. So um, that's where Top Knife originated. And uh, the first uh, eight or ten translations into another language came from the medical military aspects of other countries, uh, including Russia, Japan, uh, Italy, France, Germany, Poland. And uh, um, so it was was those individuals who uh, knew they wanted someone to have this kind of book who pushed for uh, the secondary translation. And... uh, so uh, we did not want to make it a critical care book with all of the crazy different settings that you have on the many different kinds of a ventilator. Uh, but for the person who is trying to teach somebody, maybe that's out there on a practical book. I personally think uh, uh, the ultrasound in the surgical ICU has made things very, very complex and has not helped. So when I was talking about being honest up front, being honest in what really helps you, does a Swan-Gans catheter help you more or does an ultrasound of the vena cava help you more? Uh, or does physical exam help you more on chest tube insertion or does a ultrasound of the chest help you? For those of you out there who have any inkling of interest in trauma, and if you're listening to this podcast, you obviously do. If you have not yet read Top Knife, purchase a copy and read it cover to cover, you are going to enjoy it and you're going to take away some key lessons when it comes to exposure of major vascular injuries, irrespective of whether or not you're in the neck, 
chest, abdomen, or groins. You know, following up on the topic of non-operative management, Dr. Maddox, you mentioned that we really, in the world of trauma, have moved away from operating. And yesterday on Twitter, there was a big back and forth about management of a grade four spleen injury with large volume hemoperitoneum and a 75-year-old with cirrhosis. And I was amazed at how many people didn't want to operate on this patient. They want to go to Anjo, and if Anjo fails, then we take the patient to the operating room. I mean, if there's a good indication to operate, why would you not take out a spleen, or why would you not take that opportunity to go to the operating room, teach learners and residents how to mobilize the spleen, get those four laps behind it so that it's in the middle of your incision and you're not struggling way up in the left upper quadrant, mobilize the ligaments and and take it without injuring the pancreatic tail. It really is amazing that we've gone so far away from operating that now we have to make up new specialties like emergency general surgery in an effort to get our, our case logs and, and operative experience. There is a good logic for not taking out the spleen. Let's hear it. You don't know how to operate to begin with. <laughs> or you're afraid to operate. That's, yeah. I have heard a major face in American trauma at an East meeting who said, if I never have to go to the operating room again, um, I will be happy. I enjoy... I enjoy being able to say I saved the person an operation. Uh, That's the way internists think. Absolutely. So when our leaders, program directors, with major titles of leaders, both in the organizations and in the uh, uh, American uh, Board of Surgery, they recruit people who think like an internist, psychiatrist, rehabilitation, pediatrician, not think like a surgeon. Um, interventional radiologists thinks, and an interventional cardiologist think like surgeons. They want to get the, a problem right. fixed in a technical way and move on with it. So I think part of the problem is in our, in our organizational surgery. And I hope as Dr. Harris uh, takes over from Dr. Uh, Hoyt, uh, we move into uh, producing that go-to surgeon for every community in America. If I am 82 years old and you were talking about a 70-year-old, if I have my spleen busted, uh, I have surgeons I know of in Houston that I will call and I'll say, Take that sucker out and put it in a bucket. And uh, uh, because they're a go-to surgeon. I I know surgeons in Houston. I would not call. Every community should have a go-to doctor that when things are tough, you know that person has good hands, good brain, good speed. And they came from an institution where it was paramount to teach Judgment, yes, and don't operate when it's not needed. Of course. Don't think up an operation just to send a bill. But when surgery is needed, you can get on with it. And uh, 
uh, clamp that iliac in 12 seconds. Uh, that you can get that spleen uh, mobilized uh, and the lapse back in less than 60 seconds. Uh, you can you can you can apply a, a Satinsky and a Crayford clamp uh, to the right place at the right time, even blindfolded because you've been there before yeah. and before and before. That's right. Yeah, yeah. it's all in the feel and yeah. the fingers. Now, uh, though, everyone listening to this podcast, if they have that problem, be it even an elective emergency, a complication from a bariatric surgery. They know people who fiddle around forever and ever and ever and then have complications all secondary to the right. fiddling. And they know surgeons who they have seen and said, when my family or I have that problem or if I receive a phone call, I know who I'm going to go to or who I'm going to call. Right. And uh, even now with telemedicine, uh, we have people that we can call all over the world who have been there, who have published, uh, and uh, we can even use a cell phone to put into the wound and show us what's wrong with the lung, how we can do a media, uh, a, a, a rotation of the lung to gain uh, central control. Absolutely. And I always remember one of my early career mentors telling me that, you know, as a surgeon or general surgeon and practicing physician, you really want to be that person that when crap hits the fan or someone is sick or someone is dying, you're the person they think of to call when they need help. And I think we should all strive to be that physician at our hospital, within our communities and, and garner that reputation. Now, Dr. Maddox, I know you're a super busy man and I obviously don't want to keep you too long. Uh, earlier, we talked about innovations and advances in technology, and we talked about the microchip. We touched upon drones. We don't have time to go into AI, but I would certainly, in a future episode or, or down the road, love to hear your thoughts on that. But this year, obviously, things uh, took a marked turn in this country and things really shut down. But fortunately, you were able to have your Las Vegas meeting this year. How was that, and what are the plans for the future? Uh, we had 800 people attend the Las Vegas meeting. Wonderful. The first large professional surgical meeting uh, uh, since uh, since COVID began. And uh, of that, uh, half were uh, virtual and half were uh, live. I have never seen such enthusiasm as I did this year in the live audience. That's great. The uh, work staff of Caesar's Palace were just elated. They had a job. They hadn't worked in a year. And uh, uh, we uh, made sure we abided by the rules, yes. Um, the We did uh, some of the uh, uh, learning uh, on the virtual side that was possible, yes, but it wasn't as warm and crisp as the live. Um, and we had speakers that were virtual and we had speakers that were live. I am committed, uh, if at all possible, uh, next year only having live speakers. And I haven't decided yet on the uh, live uh, versus virtual. Uh, it may be uh, we'll have to do that. Uh, but uh, if possible, I'm going to make it as live as possible. Uh, the hallway conversation, the uh, exhibit conversation, uh, 
the evening dinner conversation among people who say, uh, how are you doing this? How am I doing that? That's part of our craft. Right. Uh, and that's part of our learning that we're, I'm okay this year. And let's face it, things change very quickly in, in our field. And there are fads which come and go. And, uh, uh, that we think are going to be absolutely wonderful that turn out to be terrible. And we need to know that and hear that and be honest with that. One of the things that I really enjoy about the Vegas conference is that uh, each of the faculty attend everybody else's lecture and you can't get them out of the room. (laughs) And I take notes during the meeting and, um, I, at the end, summarize on one PowerPoint slide their 15-minute presentation. And uh, um, I, I am fair. I, it's not my own bias. But then I have a different colored slide following that summary, and I critique. And uh, I uh, say, this is my view. Uh, you can take it or leave it. Humor this old man. Uh, but... Uh, uh, were those things that were new, like Kaplan's stuff this year on use of vasopressors? I, 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 I say this is one of the hottest things I've heard in a while. Don't forget this. And so I try to summarize in less than an hour, uh, three days worth of uh, cutting uh, frontline news. And I try to tell the faculty, make this as much as possible uh, technical aspects of what the surgeon that goes to one meeting a year and the surgeon that uh, is the go-to surgeon of the community, and they come to Las Vegas to technically learn what's going on, teach them that trick. And we get back uh, uh, emails and phone calls. Uh, what I learned yesterday saved a patient today, and that makes it all worthwhile. Dr. Maddox, I want to thank you so much. This is such a privilege and an honor to be able to sit down with you. I know your time is very valuable. Uh, I want to thank you so much for sharing your experiences and words of wisdom with our audience. And I look forward to speaking with you again in the not too distant future. These kind of conferences uh, expose the probably over a thousand different new ideas. Let me leave you with one challenge. I personally feel that clinical practice guidelines are maybe a good way to teach as long as we're honest in that clinical practice guideline. If you take the East, the Western trauma, an individual institution's clinical practice guidelines, probably 80% of them are not based on good science. And I personally think that every clinical practice guideline ought to be sunsetted every five years. And its new clinical proven worth should not be based on emotion or a paper that at the end says uh, uh, another multi-institutional <laughs> clinical study needs to be done to prove right. this. And anytime you read that, know that's an opportunity to dispel dogma. So uh, people who are listening to this today, The place to start is your own hospital's clinical practice guidelines that are often written by surgeons that are afraid to operate or 
haven't learned to do the tricks and don't want to be exposed. That void is ready to be filled by you. Such an opportunity. Don't miss the opportunity. There's always room at the top and there's always a better way. Fantastic parting words from the master and legend, Dr. Ken Maddox. Dr. Maddox, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Trauma ICU Rounds. And if you'd like to show your appreciation and support for the show, you can do so via Patreon. Also, please be sure to visit us at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating and a kind comment. Until next time, stay safe, keep reading, take care of yourselves and one another.